commandment. Revelation chapter 1, if you want to begin to find your way there. Uh, and um, we begin this morning, perhaps, actually I will change that most definitely, the most requested sermon series that I have had in my time here at Barberville. Um, it should come as no surprise to any of us uh, that the book of Revelation is one of the most discussed, debated, contested, and also perhaps one of the most referenced books in the Bible. Uh, it is one of those books that even people who are not Christians uh, know the name of just because of the apocalyptic nature and how oftentimes uh, the book of Revelation is used even in, in uh, common vernacular and cultural references. Uh, you know, anytime a movie uh, wants to talk about some wacko Christian, they have him standing on the corner with a sign saying, the end is near, beware, the end is near. And what's he talking? He's referring to Revelation, behold, the time is near. And I wanted to begin this morning just with a short bit of a preference to how we got here at this moment, because when I came to Barberville 13 years ago, I told the people then that the book of Revelation would be the last book I would preach right before I retired some 30 years later. Now, obviously, I'm not retiring this morning, uh, but my hesitancy in preaching the book of Revelation really stemmed both from ignorance and perhaps a bit of laziness. And you see, growing up here in the Bible Belt, I had heard the book of Revelation preached multiple times from different people, but all of them came from one particular viewpoint of the end times, uh, or one particular eschatology. If you're not familiar with the word eschatology, that word just means study of the end. So it's anytime you talk about the book of Revelation and a person's view of how they interpret Revelation, that's their eschatology. And that position was the dispensational premillennial position. Uh, most artly heralded by teachers like Hal Lindsey, Jack Van Impey, John Hagee, and then I'm sure many of us in this room remember the early 2000s when Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins came out with the Left Behind book series. It was everywhere. Those books all heralded that dispensational premillennial position. And that position um, has for the last perhaps, say, 75, 80 years been the most dominant viewpoint um, of the modern church in America, per se, and has seen hundreds, if not thousands, of sermons, movies, and books and conferences dedicated to it. The problem that I experienced, and perhaps some of you can identify with, is that as I listened to numerous sermons and lessons from this position, I just couldn't seem to wrap my mind around a lot of what I was hearing. It seemed so very crystal clear to a lot of these teachers, but to me, it was just a confusing mess. I ultimately concluded that because I couldn't understand how the Soviet Union and Mikhail Gorbachev must be the Antichrist and how Russia must be Gog and how all of these other things correlated together and how I didn't see fighter planes and, and, and helicopters in the book of Revelation, that I must just be profoundly idiotic. And because of that, I really kind of came lazy in my viewpoint of Revelation. I was like, well, it's just too complicated. I can't understand it. I'm just going to leave it over here and leave it to the experts. But God had other plans. Um, as we were in the midst of COVID, we were preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. And as I was preparing for Matthew, I knew that Matthew 24 was coming. Matthew 24 is a deeply uh, eschological book from many perspectives. And so I knew that I had to solidify my position before I got there. And so I began a study of, of the different positions of eschatology. And the more I studied and I looked at the evidence, it seemed from my point of view to point to a post-millennial partial preterist perspective. We're going to discuss more of what these big terms mean. I know some of this is going to be a little bit confusing, perhaps not too redundant, but I think by the time we get to the end, it'll make more sense. Now, again, I, I hold to a post-millennial partial preterist position. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to. Now, if you want to be right, you should, but it doesn't mean that you have to hold to that position. Now, after that moment, I mean, since that point in time, the more we have studied in the Scriptures, the more I continue to see things that, that point to this position. Now, again, as a moment of preference, despite my best efforts as we preach through the book of Revelation, I am not going to be able to answer every burning question you've ever had about Revelation in my sermons on Sunday morning. I'm more than glad to discuss after the church each Sunday. If you have questions or you want to set us out of time, I'm more than glad to do that. But it's also important, again, to remember this is a very contested and debated book of the Bible. Uh, since the time of Jesus, 
Some of the smartest and wisest pastors and theologians have weighed back and forth on certain parts of this book. Uh, as one author pointed out, John Calvin and all the immense work that he did to do his commentary series didn't even tackle the book of Revelation. It's the book that he left out. Uh, R.C. Sproul, who I believe was probably one of the smartest theologians and pastors of the last 100 years, changed his own viewpoint on Revelation several times during his life. That being said, the one thing I have come to see about the book of Revelation is that how someone views Revelation has a profound effect on their view, not only on the world, but their hope for the future of the church and the power of Christ's kingdom and the Great Commission. I have respected teachers in all camps. I have friends in all of them. And I think at the end, when the world comes to an end, there's going to be some of us who are right in some things and we're going to be wrong in some things. No one is going to be exactly perfectly right when it comes to their eschatology. To me, the greatest thing, and I've said this before in other sermons, the most important thing about your position in your eschatology is that it motivates you to a greater passion for the Great Commission. Anything else is a moot point. As long as your position motivates you to share Jesus more with every person you come into contact with, that's what matters. Now, I told my growth group last week that I have somewhat jokingly entitled this series, Revelation, It's Not the End of the World. With that being said, let's begin. What we're going to look at this morning here in this book, as we do with every series, is the who, what, where, when, and why. Because we, we need to lay a foundation to understand what it is we're looking at. And so the, the best way I've found to do that with each new book is to just view it as an investigative reporter would do. When the reporter shows up, he asks those five diagnostic questions, who, what, where, when, why. We need to know that because that's important, because it's going to set the precedence for how everything else unfolds through the book of Revelation. Let's read that passage together. So if you would stand with me as we read just verses 1 through 3 there of chapter 1. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and, and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. You can be seated this morning. Now, some of these we'll move through rather quickly because they are communicated to us very obviously in the text. The first one is who, right? And John relates that to us there in the very beginning. It says, through his bondservant, John. This book is written to us by the Apostle John, the beloved disciple of Jesus, the writer of the Gospel of John, which bears his name, and also 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Now, there have been periods of time throughout the history of the church, uh, people who have rejected the authorship of this book by the Apostle John. Uh, there was a movement uh, sometime where they said that it was actually a, 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 man, gentleman, excuse me, a gentleman by the name of John who was an elder in the early church who wrote this book. But all of the earliest church fathers, including Justin, Clement, Origen, Tertullian, all of these attested to the authorship of the book of Revelation by the Apostle John. And we go to it from here, understanding, again, our trust in the Word, our trust in the fact that God has kept His Word and, and has delivered it to us now some several thousand years later. This is the Apostle John who is writing to us this letter. Now, moving from the who to the what, we only have to continue there in verse 1. Notice what it says. It says, "...the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to Him to show His bondservants the things which must soon take place." This book is described in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's described as a prophetic book, again, just describing future events. Most often you'll hear the book of Revelation described as an apocalyptic book. That word apocalypse means, or apocalyptic means to reveal or to unveil something. Uh, so it's an, an unveiling of, of an event. So what is this event? It's unveiling. It's unveiling the end of an age. Now, that word apocalyptic doesn't technically have to refer to the end of the world. It just refers to the unveiling of the knowledge of the end of a period of time. Uh, we would say sometimes when an event happens that it was an apocalyptic event. So it talks about the end of a certain period or a certain time frame. So here, 
John is receiving this revelation, and he's writing apocalyptically, talking about the events and the things that are going to transpire to bring about an end of an age or a period of time. I would call you to note here that although sometimes you will see in some Bibles and some translations, they will talk about this as a, the revelation of John uh, or, or John's revelation but it's not. Most modern translations, specifically here the New American Standard, it says the revelation to John, and then the subheading of verses 1 through 3 says the revelation of Jesus Christ, because it's exactly what this is. This is not John's revelation. It's Jesus's revelation to John. He is the receiver of this message, and he's giving it to them to prepare them for something. Notice what it says. It says to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. So he's, he's giving John something about an, an event or a series of events that are getting ready to unfold. So he's communicating a message to his bondservants, to his church. So he gave it to John. He says he gave him, then he gave it to John to do something with it. It was to show his bondservants. Uh, that word there is, is his slaves. So these are the servants of God, the slaves of God. So this is the church. This is a, an unveiling that Jesus wanted his church to know about. It's an unveiling of events that Jesus is so, he deems it as so important that he's sending an angel to John to relate these things to him. Now, if God saw this as so important to deliver this to John and to have him write it down, we understand how important this must be. And that's why the book of Revelation, that as, 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 confusing or perhaps daunting as it looks from the outset when we just look at it. It's why it's so important that we take the time to work through this book and to understand it, because it is profoundly important. It is a profoundly meaningful book, not just for John and those who heard it in his day, but even for us now some 2,000 years later. So we have the who and we have the what. Let's look at the where now. And John tells us there in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1 about the where this book takes place or where he received the vision and how he's writing it down. Notice there in verse 9, if you skip down the page, he says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. John tells us that because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, he was on the island called Patmos. Now, just to be clear, John was not on vacation. He was not there celebrating and just enjoying his time there. John was in exile. The island of Patmos was a small rocky island about 35 miles off of Miletus in the Mediterranean Sea. It was an island that was barren and, and pretty much just rejected. It was an island that was used by the Roman government during the time of John to exile prisoners to. If you were banished, you were sent to the Isle of Patmos basically just to suffer and to linger and to die. And so while John here is out on this island in prison on the Lord's Day, that would be Sunday, he heard this loud voice like a trumpet, and this angel of the Lord came to him and delivered to him this message. He's delivering to him this instruction and this revelation. Now, all of that is pretty clearly established for us here just in the text. We don't have to dig very far to find out the answers to those questions. Now, when we get to the when of the book of Revelation, that's where some of the disagreement begins to appear. Now, again, it's not a contentious disagreement. You'll find men on both sides who will hotly debate this topic. Uh, most camps fall into two datings of the book of Revelation. There are the first who would say that it was written sometime before A.D. 70, most time around, most of the, uh, likely around A.D. 65 or 66, and then others who say that it was written around or after A.D. 95 or 96. So a difference of about 30 years uh, in the datings here. Now, this position is not solely based upon just the interpretation of the things of the book. It's based upon scholars looking at internal evidence, things in the Scripture, uh, looking at internal evidences of things inside the church, and then also looking at external evidences outside of the church at more secular scholars and things that were happening around the world. I hold to the position 
Uh, that it, it falls into the first camp with a dating sometime prior to A.D. 70, again, probably around A.D. 65 or 66. Um, if you want to dig more deeply into this, I would refer you to a book entitled uh, Before Jerusalem Fell uh, by Ken Gentry. Uh, Ken Gentry did this book as his dissertation and, and exhaustively studied the dating of the book of Revelation um, and pointed to the fact that most of the, most of the evidence, both internally and externally, per, points excuse me, to an earlier dating of the book of Revelation. Now, we don't have time to obviously exhaust all of the evidences that are presented there, but I do want to refer you just to a couple so that we can see why we would hold or why I hold to that earlier evidence uh, of the earlier date of the writing of the book of Revelation. It's important because, again, from the perspective that where you place the dating of the book of Revelation, again, has a, a broad impact on how you look at the rest of the book. I would refer you to turn in your Bible just over a little bit to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11 and verses 1 and 2, there is some instruction that is given there, uh, or a picture that is given there. It says, Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. And leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Here in Revelation 11, John describes a temple which, based on the evidence in the text, must be the temple that existed in Jerusalem in his day. First John calls it the holy city. There in verse 2, it says, to tread underfoot the holy city. The holy city was the term which is used most often in Scripture in describing Jerusalem. But secondly, down in verse 18 of this same passage, it tells us that these events are occurring in the city um, where the Lamb of God was slain, where our Lord was crucified. So here John is describing Herod's temple, which is the one that was present in his day. Now, another way that we can see this is what he's describing here is given to us in verse 2, in the last part of that verse, because it says they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. John is describing, measuring the temple. He's being told that something's going to happen, that it will be given to the nations, and they will tread it underfoot for 42 months. Now, 42 months is the exact time frame of the Jewish war that started beginning with Nero and then concluding when Titus destroyed the temple in A.D. 70. So there's a here, again, in Revelation chapter 11, this picture-perfect time frame, he says it's going to be under siege or under tread for 42 months. Jesus used the same type of language in his Olivet Discourse, which we looked at in Matthew 24, which if you remember, we've said pointed to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. So here John is describing Herod's temple, this beautiful edifice there in Jerusalem, and describing those events that are going to happen just a few years after he writes this letter, of this book of Revelation, that the temple is going to be destroyed during that period of the Jewish war. There's also the fact that throughout this book, because some people hold, again, and we'll point more of this out as we go through the book, but some positions hold that as John refers to the temple here in Revelation 11, he's describing a new temple that is yet to be built sometime in the future. The problem with that is twofold. One is there's nowhere in Scripture that says that there's going to be a rebuilt temple. People have to assume there will be a rebuilt temple because if you hold to the perspective that all of these events are yet to occur, John refers to a temple. There is no temple in Jerusalem. If there's supposed to be a temple in the future, there has to be a rebuilt temple. That makes sense? So it's, it's all an effort. You have, to, you have to, to force that into the text because there's no place in the Scripture that says they will rebuild the temple. It's just places where a temple exists in the text, and because you interpret it as a future event, there has to be a temple to be rebuilt for those things to occur. There's also the thing that John does not mention the destruction of the temple anywhere in the book of Revelation. We've talked before about what a cataclysmic event this was, not only for the nation of Israel, but even for the Christians who lived at that time. Had John been writing in A.D. 90, 20 years after the destruction of the temple, it seems most likely that at some point he would have at least made reference to those events and to the destruction of the temple that had happened. 
Now, the second internal evidence that it points to an earlier dating of the writing of the book of Revelation is found in Revelation chapter 17. So let's turn over there just very quickly as we look at this. Revelation chapter 17, verses 9 and 10. Here we find a passage that says, Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. Now, here described in this text is seven heads and seven mountains. Now, Rome was known in this period of time as the city of seven hills because of the seven hills surrounding the city. It was described in different writings. It was known by people, Rome is the city of seven hills. So if John is describing Rome here in these seven mountains, then these seven heads, it tells us, are seven kings. So the correct thing to do would be, let's look at this. If this is Rome, and Jesus, or excuse me, John is talking about that, can we correlate in history seven kings in the nation, in the empire of Rome, that would also correlate with the description given here that five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come, but when he comes, it will only be for a little while. If you begin with Julius Caesar, who is the first emperor of Rome, and you count forward to Nero, who would have been ruling when John was writing this letter, you find six kings or emperors. So there's six along the way. So that means five have fallen, they're no longer in power. One is, which would be Nero, who is currently ruling. But then there has to be yet one more to come who would only remain for a little while. After Nero, there was Galba. Galba took the throne in AD 68, but he only reigned for seven months. He's the shortest reigning emperor in the history of the Roman Empire. So now we see again clearly that in here, inside the internal evidence of the book of Revelation, John is writing and describing these events and these things that would happen here during this period of time, just a few years after he wrote it there in A.D. 70. Now, if we wanted to look at a couple of items of external evidence, so this would be outside of Scripture. There is the Muratorian Canon. This is the earliest list that still survives of the canonical books. So in the ancient writings, this is the earliest still existing list of all of the books of the canon of Holy Scripture. When the, when, the, when the Bible was canonized and they decided which books would be in it and which books would be not, this is the earliest list that still exists. In that canon, there is a statement that's comparing the writings of Paul and John, which says this, quote, The blessed apostle Paul, following the rule of his predecessor John, writes to no more than seven churches by name. So, here we can conclude that Paul's last writing to a church could not occur before John wrote Revelation. So because they are putting basically a time frame on when these letters were written to the churches, because Paul also wrote to the seven churches. So if he's writing to them, it could not have occurred before John wrote Revelation in order for them to describe it in such a way. The second one is one of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria. In his book, Miscellanies, he states this, quote, The teachings of our Lord at his advent, beginning with Augustus and Tiberius, was completed in the middle of the times of Tiberius, and that of the apostle embracing the ministry of Paul ends with Nero. So Tiberius, excuse me, Clement is describing this his entire ministry of the Lord begins here with Augustus and Tiberius, and that the ministry of Jesus and his apostles, and he says also including Paul, who he saw as apostle, ends with Nero. So he's basically putting a book in on this period of time of both Jesus and the apostles. Now, the book mentioned earlier by Ken Gentry, he lists over 130 scholars who hold to this earlier date. And actually, Steve Grigg, in his parallel commentary on Revelation, notes this, quote, the early date was the prevalent theory among Bible scholars of the 19th century. And in his book, he quotes Philip Schaefer, who wrote in 1910 that the early date is now accepted by perhaps the majority of scholars. It's not really been that the later date has become into much more acceptance until this last perhaps 75 years or so is when the date began to shift to a later writing of the book of Revelation. I think you can also look to it here in the opening verses, which we read just a little bit ago, as evidence that the writing of this book communicates to us an earlier date. 
Now, again, this is coming from the perspective that I hold that what we find here in the book of Revelation is a description of events that are going to happen there in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple. Notice what John says there as he writes in verse 1. He says, to show his bondservants the things which must what? Soon take place. Here's the first of John's timetables for the events in this book. He says, the things which must soon take place. This is important for how we view the rest of the book of Revelation. John's going to repeat this phrase um, at the end of the book in verses in chapter 22, verse 6, which we read there before the sermon started. So if Jesus is saying to John, and he's describing to the church, that a series of events are about to happen which shall soon take place, what does that mean? It reminded me of a debate I watched one time between uh, well-known atheist Christopher Hitchens and Pastor Doug Wilson. Uh, In this debate, Hitchin refers to Jesus' declaration in Matthew 24 that this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Hitchens, seemingly gloating at this point, looks at Pastor Wilson and says, See, all those people died. None of those things happened. That means Jesus is a liar, and because Jesus is a liar, you can't trust anything that he says. And so Pastor Wilson was quick to point out. He said, No, in fact, all those things were fulfilled. When the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, Jesus' word came perfectly to fulfillment, and all of that generation had passed away yet. Faced with that response, Hitchens apparently had never heard before. He was taken aback that his argument was a moot point. But the point I make this morning is that timelines are important when it comes not only to how we understand a book, but I believe also to the truthfulness of what a person is saying. Because if Jesus says this generation will not pass away until all these things take place, and then that generation dies and none of those things have taken place, then how can we trust anything Jesus says? But if yet we understand that those things did take place, then it just puts much more trustworthiness on the words of Jesus. Not that we doubt it, but again, to an audience who would question those things, now we can understand and see, yes, Jesus was telling the the pure gospel truth when he said that, and it's exactly what happened. Because what we find here is very similar. Look at verse 3. It says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. For what? For the time is near. So John here in two verses says, these things which shall soon take place. And then in verse 3 it says, for the time is near. I want you to also notice here in this passage that there's a promise. It says there's a promise that is given that those who would hear, read, and heed the word of this prophecy would be blessed. But that leads us to a question, right? If the book of Revelation contains a description of events that even still today, 2,000 years later, have not happened yet, how could those who have received this letter in John's day understood them? How could they have heeded them or obeyed them? It makes much more sense when seeing this book largely again as a description of events that the early church would face in the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem. It makes much more sense that not only could they read it, not only could they hear it, understand it, but then as the events happened, they could heed the warnings and the message of it. This book would have served as a significant encouragement to the early church that as they watched this event unfold, seemingly a a world-altering event, I mean, and this, the, the only way that we can kind of reconcile this in our mind on, on a very tiny scale is the, the attack in, on September 11th in New York City, right? Remember when, when the, those terrorists flew those planes into the, the Twin Towers on 9-11? For a few days, it changed the nation right? Everyone was glued to their TV. How could this happen? How could an event like this happen? How could so many people lose their lives? Now, that's, that's just infinitesimal in the amount of destruction that happened there in Jerusalem. I mean, the entire city was destroyed. But it gives us a little glimpse into that moment of what it would feel like for someone from the outside, an enemy, to come in and to utterly destroy something. So the people would have needed encouragement during this time. And so if this is written to the early church describing those events that were going to happen, we can clearly see how it would encourage them to trust more deeply in God and his sovereignty and in the ultimate victory of Christ's kingdom. Because no doubt, as those things begin to happen, 
As the Romans came in and they began to ransack Jerusalem and they began to destroy the temple and people were dying and the blood was flowing in the street like rivers, even the Christians, no doubt, were tempted to think, what in the world is going on? And God did not leave his people without hope because he had given them this book so that they could understand that as they watched these events take place, that God was still fully and completely and totally in control, even in the midst of all of it. It would have been a blessing to them. There's still a blessing for it to us. Because even 2,000 years later, as we read this, we're reminded of those same foundational and life-grounding truths. That if God watched over and cared for his church in the midst of what was happening there in AD 70, God still does it for us today. It's no less powerful for us if it occurred then and not in the future. In fact, I believe it's actually more powerful for us because we can see the total fulfillment of it and we see the encouragement that it brought to them. And it reminds us now that no matter what we face, no matter what we go through, that God is still completely and totally controlled. But again, note that thing in verse 3. It says, for the time is near. I would ask you a question this morning. If I wrote you a letter... And in that letter, I outlined a series of events, and I said, now watch, these things are just about to happen. Watch, because these things are soon going to take place. Would you lay that letter down and say, well, I think he's probably talking about 2,000 years from now when all these things are going to happen. You wouldn't. You would assume if I said they're going to happen soon, if the events are near, you're going to assume that that's exactly what I mean. There would have been no, no mind thought or no process for the early church to have heard John say these things which shall soon take place, these things which are near. There would have been no conception for them to think, oh, well, he's talking about things that are 2,000, 3,000, perhaps 4,000 years in the future. It's easy for us to look back and say, oh, well, Clearly, we can see John's not talking about now. He's talking about sometime in the future. But that's not how we interpret Scripture. We interpret Scripture on what the audience who heard these things would have understood, how they would have viewed these things. And understanding it from that perspective, they would have said, okay, if the time is near, we're going to be watching. If the events are soon to come to take place, we're going to be watching and waiting for them to happen. It leads us, again, to this early writing of the book of Revelation, as here John is describing those events which will take place. Which leads us to perhaps one of the other greatest questions is why? What is the purpose of this book and to what end does it serve the church? Now this is not an exclusive list. There are more things that could be pointed out as to why the book is important, but I think these are some themes that we're going to see repeated and we'll note again as we study through these chapters. Uh, one, it's important. Why? is that it prepared the early church for difficulty and persecution. It prepared them for something that they were about to face and see, unlike anything that the world had ever seen before. Uh, I quoted Josephus a couple of sermons ago as we were finishing there in the book of Daniel. Uh, when he described what happened to Jerusalem in AD 70, he said, you know, if you took all the events and all the horrible things that had ever happened in the history of time and added them all up, it wouldn't even come close to surmounting what happened in Jerusalem in AD 70. I honestly don't know that we can even wrap our minds around that kind of level of destruction, at least at that period of time in human history. It was a destructive and terrible event. Secondly, it's announcing the destruction of the Jewish temple. Why was this so important? Why was this such a pivotal moment in history, not only in the history of the world, but in the history of the church? Because with the destruction of the temple, Judaism ended as a religion. It was done. Now, there are people who still hold to the Jewish faith today, but it's not the Judaism of the Old Testament because they can't sacrifice. They can't worship in the temple. They can't do all the things that the Bible tells them to do. So as much as someone might call themselves a Jew, they are not the Jews that were in the Old Testament because all those things have been done away with. God was fully and totally bringing an end to a system. It was a system that he had created. He had put all those things into place. But he had put all those things into place as precursors and signs and symbols of who would come as the Messiah. All those things, all of the instruments inside of the temple, all of the things that they did, all of the ceremony, all of the ritual, were all pointing toward one person, and that was Jesus. 
So when Jesus came and perfectly fulfilled all that, there was no longer a need for a temple. There was no longer need for any sacrifices. And God had warned his people over and over the Jews. He had told them that the Messiah was coming, you must follow him. And finally, God said there in AD 70, it's done. It's over. And so he brings a total and complete end to Judaism. He, he, he wipes it down and wipes it off and says, we're not doing this any longer. This is a pivotal moment in history. Thirdly, I believe the book of Revelation encourages the church of all ages in the midst of difficulty. As I said before, we read through this and we see the church in crisis. We see the church in difficulty. But ultimately, what we see is the victory of Jesus over all. That even in the midst of crisis and difficulty, God is still ruling and reigning. And fourthly, we see that this book declares the kingship of Christ and his second coming at the end of the age. Now, this next part, there's no way to discuss some of these things without being uh, a little um, perhaps too scholarly in this moment. I will say what I'm about to kind of go through in the millennial viewpoints, you're not going to be able to write everything down if you're taking notes this morning. I'm glad to give you a copy of my notes if you want those, uh, but I do feel like it's, it's important for us to at least discuss a few of the perspectives in order that as we go through this book, we understand um, at, at the different viewpoints and how they view certain passages. Now, as we look at every single verse, we don't have the time each week to discuss what every single millennial viewpoint is on that verse. But if there are significant differences, I will point those out along the way uh, in order for us to have a broader grasp of that. When it comes to the book of Revelation, the first thing you have to talk about is, is the millennial view. What does a person view uh, as what does the millennium mean in the book of Revelation? We know that there's that millennial reign, the thousand years. Is that literal? Is it figurative? Is it in the past? Is it in the future? What does it mean? Uh, I would refer you um, again to a different book, R.C. Sproul's book, The Last Days According to Jesus. Um, and as I read these key tenets of each view this morning, I'm, I'm drawing those straight out of his book because they're surmised in such a way that I couldn't do it any better. Um, in fact, if I tried to do it any better, I would probably just make it more confusing. Um, so when it comes to millennial views, there's basically three dominant millennial views, and that is all millennialism, historic premillennialism, dispensationalism, and postmillennialism. Now, again, I'm going to go through these and just basically what I'm going to be describing under each point is how they view the lens of church history and the end of time from the beginning to the end. So buckle up. I'll try to take it slow. And again, if you want copies of this, I'll be glad to give it to you. Amillennialism. They believe that the church age is the kingdom era prophesied in the Old Testament. And as the New Testament church becomes the Israel of God. Amillennialism teaches that Satan was bound during Jesus' earthly ministry, restraining him while the gospel is being preached in the world. Insofar as Christ presently rules in the hearts of believers, they have some influence on culture while living out their faith. All millennialism teaches that towards the end, evil's growth will accelerate, cultivating in the great tribulation and a personal antichrist. They believe that Christ will return to end history, resurrect and judge all men, establish the eternal order, the eternal destiny of the redeemed may either be in heaven or in a totally renovated new earth. Again, along the way, you're going to see that even amongst each of these four viewpoints, there's about a hundred differing subpoints of views under each one of these. It's, Revelation is a, is a daunting, and eschatology is a daunting task. Historic premillennialism teaches that the New Testament era church is the initial phase of Christ's kingdom as prophesied by the Old Testament prophets. They believe that the New Testament church may win occasional victories in history, but ultimately she will fail in her mission, lose influence, and become corrupted as worldwide evil increases towards the end of the church age. Uh, they teach that Christ will return at the end of the tribulation to rapture the church, resurrect deceased saints, and conduct a judgment of the righteous in the twinkling of an eye. Christ will then descend to the earth with his glorified saints, fight the battle of Armageddon, bind Satan, and establish a worldwide political kingdom which will be personally administered by him for a thousand years from Jerusalem. At the end of this millennial reign, 
Satan will be loosed in a massive rebellion against the kingdom and a fierce assault against Christ and his saints will occur. God will intervene with fiery judgment to rescue Christ and the saints. The resurrection and the judgment of wicked will occur and the eternal order will begin. Now dispensationalism. Dispensationalism is also a, is, is a, sub, uh, a sub-focus of premillennialism, uh, the difference being in how they interpret certain passages. Uh, dispensationalism, dispensational premillennialism, is the view that is pictured in the Left Behind series and, again, has been a dominant view in the American church uh, for the past uh, 50 or 60 years. It's also the only viewpoint that sees the occurrence of a secret rapture of the church before the second coming. Um, what I mean by that is that dispensationalism is the only one that teaches that before Jesus comes bodily, that he raptures the church out before that occurs. So I always jokingly say in the dispensational view, Jesus comes back one and a half times because he comes back half a time to rapture out the church, and then he comes back fully the second time to take everyone else. So in the dispensational viewpoint, and another thing that I'll note here in just a moment, uh, in, the dispens- excuse me, yeah, in the dispensational viewpoint, Christ offered to the Jews the Davidic kingdom in the first century. They rejected it, and it was postponed to the future. The current church age is a parenthesis unknown to the Old Testament prophets. Uh, dispensationalism, and this is an important thing to note, teaches that God has separate programs for the church and Israel. Um, this, I believe, is one of the key dividing factors of, of the, one of the errors of dispensationalism is that they teach that God has a separate way that he's saving the church and the way that he will save Israel in the future. Uh, they teach that the church will ultimately lose influence in the world and become corrupted or apostate toward the end of the age. Christ will return secretly to rapture his saints before the great tribulation. After the tribulation, Christ will return to earth to administer a Jewish political kingdom based in Jerusalem for 1,000 years. Satan will be bound and the temple will be rebuilt and the sacrificial system reinstituted. Near the end of the millennium, Satan will be released and Christ will be attacked at Jerusalem. Christ will call down judgment from heaven and destroy his enemies. The second resurrection and the judgment of the wicked will occur, initiating the eternal order. Now, finally, postmillennialism teaches that the messianic kingdom was founded on earth during the earthly ministry of Christ and the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. The New Testament church becomes the transformed Israel or the Israel of God, which Paul speaks about in Galatians 6. The kingdom is essentially redemptive and spiritual rather than political and physical. The kingdom will exercise a transformational sociocultural influence in history. Uh, the kingdom of Christ will gradually expand in time and on earth. This will be accomplished not without Christ's royal power as king, but without his physical presence on earth. And probably one of the key things of the post-millennial perspective is that the Great Commission will ultimately succeed. Um, finally, it teaches that an extended period of spiritual prosperity may endure for millennia, after which history will be drawn to a close by the personal, visible, bodily return of Christ. His return will be accompanied by a literal resurrection and a general judgment, ushering in the final and eternal form of the kingdom. Now, without sounding too redundant, I would recommend one last book before we close that I think best highlights uh, what has been called the bright hope of post-millennialism. Um, and that is Ian Murray's book, The Puritan Hope. Ian Murray is a phenomenal biographer. I would encourage you to read any of his books, but specifically The Puritan Hope, because in it, Murray lays out that the Puritans and their post-millennial viewpoint was the foundation for modern missions. The reason that Adoniram Judson, William Carey, and many of these early missionaries went to the mission field was because they held to a post-millennial perspective in their eschatology. And they viewed that if the Great Commission is going to be successful, which they believed it would be, then they believed we've got to go. We've got to do what God has called us to do. And so they went to the furthest reaches of the earth with this desire that God's kingdom would continue to grow. The reason that postmillennialism for me was such a drawing point is based upon what I see in the texts of Scripture, is that if we believe that the gospel is good news, which we do, And if we believe that the gospel is powerful, which we do, and if we believe the scripture is true, that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, the old things have passed away, behold, all things become new. And if we believe that the gospel is the power to save, which we do, then that means that it changes people. And that as it changes people, it has the power to change more people. Now, post-millennialism is 
is often criticized by saying that it believes that the world is just going to get better and better and better and better and then the end. That's not what postmillennialism teaches at all. Postmillennialism teaches that the gospel will ultimately be successful around the world as much as God has desired for it to be successful. It also does teach that the world does improve, but it doesn't improve in a straight line. It improves much like the world operates in a very cyclical fashion. Throughout the history of the church, we have seen the birth of the early church. The church grew tremendously, and then under persecution under Nero, the church was pushed back. And then in periods of times, it continued to grow. But what you see in the history of the church is that even with those bumps and those falls, that ultimately it started here, and ultimately we are here. Even with the valleys and peaks along the way, the church and the success of the gospel continues to grow. Now, as you look around at the world today, you might ask the question, well, how do you see that? And really, post-millennialism was one of the dominant eschatological positions all the way up until the 20th century. Now, what happened in the 20th century that would cause post-millennialism to fall by the wayside? Well, World War I, and then World War II. And so people looked and said, well, wait a minute, how can we say that the world's getting better when we're having all of these great wars? Well, see, that's the problem when we interpret Scripture through world events. Because world events don't shape what God's timetable is. I mean, you can look at the history of the church, and there have been cataclysmic events that have happened, but people still persevered through those. I would encourage you to note just this morning, what is one way that we can see that God, through the power of the gospel, is using things in this world to do something that's greater than he was doing perhaps 100 years ago? I referred earlier to Adrian Judson and William Carey, two of my favorite missionaries. Now, when Adrian Judson set off to go to the mission field there in Burma, he said goodbye to his family, never thinking that he would ever see them again. He, he, he said, so long, goodbye forever, because the trip took them a year and a half to get over there. And then once you get there, you might be able to send a letter back, but you never know if the letter made it home. You never knew if you would ever hear from your family again. But they were willing to go. They were willing to sacrifice and go across the world to declare the gospel because they wanted people who had never heard to hear the truth of the gospel. It was difficult. It was arduous, it was expensive, and it was, you had to risk your life in order to do that. Now, right now, I'm speaking to you here in Waynesville, North Carolina. And right back there is a tiny little magic box that takes my sermon and sends it up in, in, in electronic signals to a satellite. And somebody right now in Burma could be listening to this sermon and hearing the gospel. That's progress. That, that's, that's, that's something that God has done for the church, and the church has the power now. Can you imagine what Paul would have thought if he said, wait a minute, you're telling me I can preach the gospel in one spot, and thousands of people across the world can hear me instantaneously at the same time? That's the power that God can do. Now, again, it's not to say that there's not bad things within it. We all know these things are, but God is greater than those things. We look at how the church is growing around the world. We have the tendency so much as Americans to look at the success of the church or the success of Christianity based on what we see happening around us. But brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to, to remove the blinders and look around the world at what God is doing. And I think you, again, you see that cyclical fashion. There have been periods of time where the church has grown in America and church in periods of time where the church has waned in America. And when the church is waning in America, it's growing in China. And when it's waning in China, it's growing in Africa. And when it's waning in Africa, it's growing in Europe. And all those things happen throughout the period of time of history. And God is doing his work. And ultimately, there will be a visible and demonstrable spiritual prosperity that will happen before the Lord returns. Now, finally, as we close... Four last things that we talk about. There are millennial viewpoints, and there's also interpretive styles. Now, when you view the book of Revelation, you have to pick a viewpoint of how you're going to view this book. What do you believe this book refers to? The first is a historist perspective. The historist sees the book of Revelation as a symbolic picture of the entirety of church history from the day of Christ until his second coming. John here is not writing uh, about any particular thing, ultimately he's giving us the almanac of church history. So what began with Jesus, what will end with his second coming, all of that is included here in the book of Revelation. The idealist says that the book of Revelation is just a spiritual conflict between God and Satan throughout all time. 
Uh, they would say that John here is not talking about certain things that are ph- philosophical or spiritual. Uh, or he, he, is, he is actually looking at things that are philosophical and spiritual rather than particular events in history. Uh, this is not a position that's held by uh, most Christians. It's a position that's held by a lot of fringe groups, uh, say Seventh-day Adventists and some others like that. Uh, but again, it says that there's nothing actually describing particular events. This is just a philosophical book. Uh, the futurist perspective includes those in the premillennial camp and say that Revelation chapter 4, verses 22, are all describing future events that have yet to occur. And then the preterist perspective, again, which I'll hold to, uh, views that the book of Revelation, up until the latter chapters, are all describing the events that occurred in the time leading up to and including the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. Now, when it comes to the preterist perspective, it's important that as I close, I point out the difference between what is labeled today as partial preterism and hyper-preterism. Partial preterists, such as myself, are, again, describe the bulk of Revelation fulfilled in AD 70, but still hold to a bodily, physical, personal return of Jesus Christ at the end of time. A person who holds to a hyper-preterist position says that all of the book of the Revelation, including the second coming of Jesus, have all already occurred in the past. Uh, it's for this reason that the hyper-preterist position is considered an unorthodox or heretical position. Um, any Orthodox person understands that no matter what your position is on Revelation, Jesus is still coming in the future in a bodily, physical, powerful way. And that's what we all long for and look for. So as we close this morning, I think you can see already this is going to be a fun and exciting journey through a book. Uh, But by the end of the time over our next several months, what I hope that it will do is that it will draw us to this place to do exactly what John says there in those opening verses. That as we read and as we hear and understand and heed the words of this book, the Scripture says that we will be blessed by it. And that blessing did not just apply to those who first received it. That blessing still applies to us today. The more deeply we dig into this and understand it, the promise is that we will be blessed. May God grant it to be so. Let's pray. Father, today we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray for us as we over the next several months, endeavor into this book. Uh, God, that you would guide our hearts and our minds ultimately to Christ. This is his revelation. This is his book uh, written down to us by the Apostle John. But Father, it is his. And describing these events, uh, these world-changing events, and how we understand this, Father, does have such a profound impact on on how we live today, uh, on our hope for the future, on our trust uh, in, in your providence and your sovereignty, and Father, also in our view of what we are being called to do in the time in which we live. So, Father, we pray that you would guide us, that you would direct us, that you would, uh, your Holy Spirit would be close to us in this time. Uh, Lord, unveiling these truths to our heart. Uh, it is not by my persuasiveness, uh, it is not by my knowledge that these words are unveiled and revealed, Father. It is only by the power of your Holy Spirit doing its work, uh, doing the work of the Word in our heart. It is only because He unveils these things that we can understand. So we pray for that clarity. We pray for that instruction. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name.